Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field, the podcast where we share your student affairs stories from fresh perspectives to seasoned experts. This is season two, Critical and Crisis Conversations, featuring a special COVID-19 and higher education miniseries. This podcast is brought to you by NASPA, and I'm Jill Creighton, your SA Voices from the Field host. Welcome back to another Thursday, SA Voices Squad. Today's episode is going to continue our COVID-19 dialogue about how the pandemic is impacting the profession. And we're really going to spend the time today in the enrollment management space. Sometimes enrollment management falls in student affairs, sometimes it doesn't. But regardless, enrollment management impacts each of us in the profession. Today, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Ina Agnew. Quote, serving students where they are, end quote, is Dr. Ina Agnew's value proposition, and she has demonstrated this in every aspect of her career, from conducting home visits with students to help them complete admissions and financial aid paperwork to offering services in the online environment. Dr. Agnew began her professional career with the Boy Scouts of America. She developed skills in recruiting, fundraising, and special events, planning that would eventually lead her to a career in student affairs and higher education. She transitioned to higher education as a job location development officer for Northwestern State University in Louisiana, helping students find employment and recruiting businesses to hire NSU grads. She has served as the Dean of Students at Ottawa State University, Vice President for Enrollment Management at Oklahoma State University Institute of Technology, OSUIT, and has been the Vice President for Student Services at OSUIT, overseeing enrollment management since 2012. She earned her bachelor's degree from the University of South Florida in human resources and psychology and a master's degree in human services from Murray State University in Kentucky and her Ph.D. in occupational education from the Oklahoma State University. Dr. Agnew's favorite responsibility is helping companies grow in their talent pipeline by partnering with businesses who sponsor students by providing scholarships, paid internships, paid internships and upon, graduation. upon graduation. Ina, thanks so much for joining the show today. I appreciate the invitation. I'm very excited about this topic. So I know that you're probably one of our most passionate professionals about enrollment management yeah. uh, and your role spends your time in that space. So how did you get to... You know, it was really interesting. I actually transitioned from nonprofit management. So I used to work for the Boy Scouts of America and I was a professional involved in recruiting and it's the recruiting expertise that helped me transition into higher education. And so my husband had gotten transferred with the Boy Scouts when we had both been in Houston, Texas. And so I left the Boy Scouts of America and got involved in job location development, which is a federal work study program. And uh, from there, transitioned into enrollment management, again, with my recruiting experience helping out. And then just kept climbing from there until I became the vice president of student affairs with enrollment management under me. So enrollment management has shifted so much over time. It's almost a science now compared to, I think, where the field had been, you know, several decades mm-hmm. ago. So what do you think the core principles of good enrollment management look like? Today? Okay, well, I would say first and foremost, it has to be about data, understanding data, being able to collect to analyze, and then to capitalize on the data that you've collected, because all decisions have to be driven off of that. Uh, Some of it is kind of like a gut feeling, but but it really is the data that's going to back you up and point the direction. And I would say, too, it has to be about customer service. Students have so many options. Parents have so many options for their students and ways to work with them that it, it really is not just about the programs, but where am I going to get the best service? Who's going to be the most receptive? Are the classes going to be offered 
in the way I want them to be offered in the time frame that I want so that I can graduate on my time, not the university's time. I think that graduation mark has been such an important data point for many institutions, but also those persistence measures from first to second year. And then that third to fourth year, I think is another big one. So what does your team do to help with students? Oh my goodness. We do a lot of things. Obviously what's typical across the board, whether you're private or or, or a public institution, two-year, four-year, highly selective open admissions is going to come down to the continual early alerts, monitoring those early alerts, getting in there and, and really working with the students, working with the faculty to support the students, providing the services that they need. Most students will tell you on the surveys that you collect of information, you know, withdrawal surveys, for example, they'll always say it's a financial aid issue. It doesn't always mean that it's a financial aid issue. It might be a family issue or it might it might be that they just simply were overwhelmed and they weren't ready to come to school yet or weren't mature enough yet. Maybe they made the decision and came to went, went away from home and they find that they really need to go back to home. So following up and really continually asking students about that. So so we do those kinds of things. We also collect information off of the application. So were you a a low-performing student in high school? Then we're going to reach out to you as an applicant, and and we're going to find out what what kind of services are you comfortable with? Are you are can, can we get you into the tutoring center early? Do we need to get you in to our workshops on time management? Uh, do we need to have someone sit down with you early enough in the game and start planning out a pathway for you of how you're going to enroll in classes semester after semester semester and lay out what that looks like for you? So it, it it's it's more getting out early and often and really kind of I, I kind of am reluctant to use the term but it is about being intrusive getting in there and really being on top of the student because sometimes they don't know what they don't know and they don't know how to ask and so we try to think of all the possible things given their background that we could put at their disposal to help support them so high touch resources absolutely I think one of the things in student affairs is that enrollment management sometimes lives within student affairs, sometimes it lives adjacent, and in your case, it's combined. So when you think about what you would want kind of a traditional student affairs professional to know about enrollment management, what are those? It really is about customer service, how the student wants to be contacted, how often does the student want to be contacted, what kind of supports do we need to put at their disposal? That has to be number one, you know, just really working and creating a relationship with the student. And then I would say, it's going to go back to what kind of data can we collect about the student's experiences that will help us to support that student and will create kind of a knowledge database that we can then use to see how we can improve services to other students as well. I like that continuous improvement model. I think that's a really important part of our profession as a whole. Uh, so you, you've mentioned a couple of times that data is the, the peak Thing that you're looking at in enrollment management. What types of data points do you find to be the most helpful in looking at persistence? Well, systems? I will say for OSU Institute of Technology, my institution, the things that we find that are most relevant are what programs are they going into? If they're going into technical programs, we're pretty much going to retain them at OSU Institute of Technology. Uh, what, where, how far are they coming away from home? We find that the students that perform best and who persist to graduation are those students who are within a five-hour driving distance of OSUIT. Uh, and I think other institutions may find similar things, especially at community colleges. The highly selective admissions, the things that might make a difference for them might be the programs. What kind of contacts are they making on the campuses? How are they connecting those students to resources, to student clubs and organizations? 
What kind of involvement are they providing for them? And so I think the best thing for institutions to do in terms of managing persistence and retention to graduation is really developing the profile of your successful students. So who are the students who have graduated? And then and then get granular into the data. What what was their academic performance? What program were they in? What what student clubs and organizations were they in? And that helps you to build a profile of those successful students that then you can use to kind of extrapolate how that might relate in terms of your student body as you're going up and you're, and you're building your your profile. And I would imagine that a good portion of that successful profile has to do with the programs that we build within student Yes, affairs. and that's why it's so critical to get students connected in organizations. And not just organizations, but, but uh, employment, on-campus jobs. That makes a huge difference because sometimes a student may not necessarily connect with a faculty member, but they might connect with that person that they work for. You know, it might be an administrative assistant, but that administrative assistant is there on top of the student and, and hey, why aren't you in class? And did you get your homework done? Or it's someone that they can ask and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really doing well in this class. And, and that person might say, well, are you aware of this critical resource on our campus? And so those contacts in student affairs do make a difference. I just want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Amelia Parnell and Dr. Omari Burnside with NASPA. They came to my campus and talked about student employment and its value in terms of retention for students. Uh, that report is out in space. So if you're listening and that's something that interests you, I suggest that you check out the NASPA website for that information. Now, you know, I think we're in a position as a nation right now, and especially in the higher education industry, when people are a little bit nervous about what enrollment might look like for the fall. So how would you suggest that campuses begin to plan for fall enrollment when many of us have pushed back our commitment dates or people's lives are just quite frankly uncertain in a lot of ways? And there's a lot of conflicting information out there as well, right? Because initial reports from Staymates and other enrollment management consulting firms initially said that students were changing their minds about their decisions. Maybe they're not going to travel as far, right? Maybe they want to stick closer to home. And yet now I'm starting to see now that we're getting well into uh, reopening in certain places and certainly in Oklahoma, we've we've reopened. uh, Those things are changing. So students are now going back to sticking with their initial plans. So to answer your question, it it is kind of scary because I'll tell you, enrollments, uh, semester credit hours, FTEs all being affected. And, and trying to get the new class in, it, it's really going to go back to those relationships. So we don't have them on campus. How do we create these relationships in an online environment? Is that virtual advising through Zoom sessions? Is that doing campus tours on your iPad and, and having students, you know, viewing your campus through that iPad? Is it texting students and calling students and, and, and doing those other things? Um, is it is it creating a space in a virtual environment where students who are all interested in the same programs or activities or hobbies or extracurricular interests can get together? So I so that's really the direction I think not only where we are right now, but we're we're also going to continue into the future because students are getting so much more comfortable now taking online classes because they didn't have a choice before, right? But now they see a lot of the value in it. And I think we're going to start to see more and more demand for online classes um, where they can connect with other people. And so institutions really have to get paid attention to the way that they're offering their online classes. I think what you mentioned is all tremendous work and it captures a very large portion of our students. 
And then I think there's this other population that we need to talk about always, which is our students who can't access the internet for whatever reason, or students who cannot be successful in online learning or will struggle to be successful in online learning. So what is the enrollment management profession talking about in terms of serving and retaining and protecting? You know, I'm going to give you a, a quick story about something that happened. Our institution, literally less than a mile from my house, is a neighborhood that none of them have access to internet service. There's no cabling. There's no access to, to Wi-Fi. Uh, so anybody in, the, in that neighborhood is not able to access the internet. Uh, one of our local schools told the parents there that they needed to, you know, that they were like, we can't get access to the internet. Okay, we'll drive to the school and we're going to provide a packet that your students will need to complete. And then when you're done, just return it to us back online. But we don't have online service, right? We picked up the packet. When do we deliver the packet back to you? Well, no, you're not going to deliver the packet back to us. You have to find a way to, to get that back to us remotely. We encourage those parents to go to the school board. So they did have a virtual school board meeting and they had to change their position. So what we do is uh, we are actually one of the few schools that's going to face-to-face -face instruction because we're a technical school. It's hard to learn how to do automotive. In, a, in an online environment, but we're going to practice social distancing. Our students are going to be required to wear masks in the learning spaces. And I think we're not the only institution that's looking at that. There are a number of institutions saying, okay, how do we deliver for those students who need to connect with other people in order to relate to the information? And some of that would be, let's do the theory portion online, and then we'll do the face-to-face -face in smaller groups and have them come. And then what kind of supports can we provide for them? And Delivering tutoring services in the online environment is one of those things, but also faculty connecting with students via Zoom, trying to get them used to that, but also calling on the phone for those students who don't have access to the internet, picking up the phone, calling them. You know, uh, we are doing a lot more snail mail, postcards and letters to make sure that our students are getting the message because we know, especially in Oklahoma, it's a rural state. There are places where they're not going to get the internet service. And so we have to be able to deliver that. Correspondence courses, interestingly enough, are also coming back where you're mailing information to the students and getting that information back. And so that's not something that we've done here at OSU Institute of Technology, but we made sure to contact the Higher Learning Commission, which is our accrediting body, so that if we needed to do that, we had the ability to do it. But we found other ways to make sure that we connected with those students and provided the information that they needed. Correspondence courses coming back is fascinating, and I wonder how that will transform learning. I'll tell you, it's, it, it's interesting because, because you're relying on the student to be able to look at the information learn the information without any interaction with the faculty member, except maybe by phone, and then completing the exercises and sending it back. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think that I understand something, and then I hear someone else in class ask a question, and I thought, why are they asking that question? That doesn't even make sense, only to find out I was the one who didn't make sense, right? And now I, I'm going to complete this correspondence course without the benefit of that kind of support, that's difficult. And so I think just like online courses have a certain kind of student that does well in it, I think correspondence has a certain type of student that will do well in that. You have to be self-directed. You have to be persistent enough to learn the material on your own without a whole lot of support. In general, the profession has just undergone a seismic shift of the way that we engage with our students and with our fellow colleagues and faculty and staff, basically in what has been two months at the most. 
And so if you were to take out your crystal ball, what do you think the impact of the pandemic will be on the future of enrollment for higher education? I know that's a big question. I do think that students are going to be a whole lot more comfortable doing things online, via phone, via text messaging, uploading things into drop boxes and into FTPs. I think that they're going to be very comfortable if they want to do something face-to-face to be able to do that via Zoom or Skype or or some other web conferencing kind of medium. I think they're going to be very comfortable with their social media and, and relaying information and getting information that way. Do you remember when when Wikipedia was an object of scorn? Do you remember? That? Okay. What, what's it like now, right? So how how has that been transformed? Now it's a legitimate source to look at, even if it's just to find a point to look information up and then go in a different direction, right? So it helps you to identify other resources. So I think having services in an online environment is going to be the same way. A lot of people are like, nah, that's not for me. Now they've had no choice. They've learned to get comfortable with it. And I think we're going to see a higher demand for quality student support services that can be done in a virtual environment. And that also means student activities. So how do you offer student life in that kind of environment? And those are the things that we're doing that enrollment managers know are critical. I think communication is another one. Frequent communication has to be coordinated across the campus. So one of the things that we did, and hopefully someone will learn from our mistake, it really was kind of funny. So we're like, okay, we need to make sure that we communicate with students often and what are our messages and how are we going to line that up? And and we just started texting the heck to, of students of everything, everything that was going on. In two weeks, we had over 100 students that opted out of text messaging. And so <laughs> that was a challenge. I think the data plans for students, I think that the internet providers are going to have to come up with more reasonable plans to provide more data plans, a more extensive at a much cheaper rate. Because think about students doing classes online and how much of that data was being used. Now, the faculty member has been innovative, incorporated a video into there. Woo, how much of that data plan has now been consumed? And so it's going to take everybody, educational institutions, students, parents, and business institutions working together to find out how are we going to deliver on that. Ina, if you were to leave our listeners with one piece of wisdom or advice on looking forward in enrollment management, I would say I'm going to go back again to the data. Connect with your students. Take a look at the data. Figure out how to improve your services. But you've got to include students and parents in the conversation. So are you surveying them? Are you finding out what's important to them? Are you finding out where you're failing so that you can make those sorts of improvements? So I would say connect with your students and your parents find out what they want, and then work with your entire campus community to deliver on that. It's time to take a quick break and toss it over to producer Chris to learn what's going on in the NASPA world. Hey, thanks, Jill. Always glad to be back and talking about the NASPA world and everything that's happening in the NASPA world. Right now, if you haven't seen the announcement, the 2021 NASPA Strategies Conference is looking for submissions for their call to programs. This deadline for call for programs is on September 16th of 2020. Now, if you have never heard of the Strategies Conference, the 2021 NASPA Strategies Conferences provides student affairs practitioners with the knowledge and skills to effectively address collegiate alcohol and drug abuse prevention, skills to effectively address 
collegiate alcohol and drug abuse prevention, mental health, sexual violence prevention and response, and well-being through a variety of comprehensive and integrative approaches. So if you do register, your registration allows you to customize your program track, even if your interests cover more than one topic. So what the NASPA Strategies Conference provides you is it converges four conferences into one. So you have the ability to be able to to look at all of the different topics, gain great perspectives, best practices, and more. Again, the deadline for this is September 16th of 2020 with an early bird registration deadline of October 28th of 2020 and a regular registration deadline of December 9th of 2020. How many of you have gotten the email in the past from the NASPA office and you see it's called Leadership Exchange? If you have never read the Leadership Exchange, it's a magazine that really allows you to look and think and and really process student affairs from a management perspective. Just recently, NASPA did release its brand new summer 2020 edition of the Leadership Exchange magazine. And in this, it is called The Road to Recovery, Student Affairs Responds to COVID-19. And in this magazine, you're going to be seeing a ton of different articles that are going to allow for you to be able to gain more perspective about what has been happening within student affairs throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. So you'll have feature articles on how student affairs is responding, talking about online student support and engagement. There's even some, some features about neurodiversity and making your own strategic plan for yourself. And through all of these, you're going to be getting articles that are written from people that have been in this profession for quite a long time, and you're going to learn and grow from each article that are in these. You can also search on the NASPA website for past issues of the magazine. So if you have never read this magazine before, I highly, highly encourage you to take a look at it and really soak in what's being shared with you. Now, coming up on August 12th, is the Student Affairs Commitment to Racial Justice Day of Action. So on April 12th, the Student Affairs community as represented by your professional associations are going to be coming together as a unit to talk about how our profession can make tangible progress in addressing racial justice on American college campuses. This is going to be a historic gathering of student affairs professionals across the widest spectrum of roles and functions. Student affairs must play a leading role in combating racism and ending racial violence. Topics during this are going to include things like research and scholarships, pathways to leadership, student affairs structures that reinforce white dominant modalities, graduate preparation programs and curriculum, burnout and racial battle fatigue for new and mid-level professionals. The day is going to start with a welcome from executive leaders from 10 student affairs associations. Following the opening, each association is going to present a half-hour session from the perspective of their content areas. It's a free event to the entire student affairs community and registration isn't required. You're going to see that they're being broadcasted on their individual Facebook pages. So watch the NASPA Facebook page for all of the broadcasts on August 12th. And I think you're really going to love what you're seeing in this day of action. 
And we are back. It is time for our lightning round. You know, we have seven questions for you in about 90 seconds. <laughs> All right. Let me breathe. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Number one, if you were a conference keynote speaker, what would your walk-up song be? Pass. <laughs> Can I press the button? <laughs> when you were five years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a small business owner. What is your student affairs essential read? Matter of fact, I have it right here. Crisis, compassion, and resiliency. Good choice. Who is your favorite author, personal or professional? Oh, on a personal level, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, their combined books together. What podcast have you spent the most hours listening to in the last year? I am all over the board, but I but I will tell you what I've really been interested in is is listening to a lot of the multi-generations in the workplace and how they're saying now that the breakdown in generations, baby boomers, first gen, millennials, and X is really all a, just a hoax. Who is your most influential professional mentor? It's actually outside of higher ed, and it's Ponce Duran, who recently retired from the Boy Scouts of America. He really pushed me to pursue my master's degree and my PhD and encouraged me to look at higher education as a career move. And finally, any shout outs you'd like to give personal or professional? I'd like to shout out to Kermit McMurray, who is a former vice chancellor for student affairs for the Oklahoma State Regents for Higher Education, and to my president, Dr. Bill Path. Ina, thank you so much for sharing your voice with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciated the invitation. This has been an episode of SA Voices from the Field, a podcast brought to you by NASPA. This show is made possible because of you, our listeners. You mean so much to us. If you'd like to reach the show, you can email us at savoices at naspa.org or find me on Twitter at Jill Creighton. We welcome your feedback and your topic and guest suggestions. We'd love it if you'd take a moment to tell a colleague about the show and like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. This episode was produced and hosted by Dr. Jill Creighton. That's me. Produced, edited, and mixed by Dr. Chris Lewis. Guest coordination by Anna Schilter. Special thanks to Washington State University's Division of Student Affairs for your support as we create this project. Catch you next time.